Well, comrades, what now? Straight forward! Conversation. <laughs> you said you had a gimmick. I didn't know what to expect. You have uh, you have shattered my expectations. By it's easy to shatter down. your expectations when you ain't got no expectations. That's also very true. My general sense of expectations are low to non-existent most times. <laughs> it's a low bar to clear. Yeah, I'm grateful yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah. It gives us something to talk about. That it Welcome. Does. Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the message. I mean, the comic, <laughs> the stories. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert. And with us is our other co-host. What's up, everybody? I'm the other co-host. My name is Drew. Yo, yo, you get a yo. So this week, in an attempt to stay relevant, to talk about some comics, you know, from all over the spectrum. We try to get some old stuff. We try to get some new stuff. This week, we're going to try to talk about something relatively new. We are going to discuss Superman Space Age by Mark Russell and Mike Allred. Drew, you mind telling the good people a little bit about it? Okay. Superman Space Age is written by Mark Russell, drawn by Mike Allred. Colored by his wife, Laura Allred, lettered by Dave Sharp, and edited by Brittany Holtzhair. It was published by DC Comics as a three-issue miniseries, and each issue was 80 pages. So these are some pretty big comics. The first issue came out in July of 2022. The second one came out in September of 2022. And the third and final issue was released in February 2023. The hardcover collection, which we both got our own copy of, came out this past May. So let me ask you, Albert, what was the motivation to pick up Space Age? What made you interested in checking it out? The main thing is, well, actually, there's a lot of upsides to this book. So for me, Mark Russell, in terms of the... One of the more current writers that's out right now that I do pay close attention to because I generally have a high sense of regard for his work. Um, so, yeah, when Mark Russell was attached to it, that was already a pretty big plus. And then when it was announced that Mike Allred would be the artist on it and together they would be doing this whole story, this entire self-contained about 240 page story you said because it's 80 80 issues each right or 80 mm -hmm. uh, pages each 80 pages yeah, each so yeah. that that sounds like a formula for just something excellent and perfect you know um, mm -hmm. we we've got a great artist we've got a great writer we've got consistency where we're not going to have a bunch of different guest artists or something and you know it it reminds me of superman red sun where it's a, it's a great comic, but even that, even though it was just three issues, that didn't get the same artist through all three issues. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's a real treasure when you can get the perfect symbiosis 
symbiotes of these two <laughs> of all these creative people working on it and they get to see it through from cradle to grave and they just give you this perfect piece of work this perfect piece of art mm -hmm. in a, a complete form that you can just enjoy so yeah there, there were a lot of upsides to that and even reading the the bits and pieces of the synopsis that we did get it it really sounded like it was the kind of superman story that was exactly up my alley yeah how about you like you it was pretty much the creative team that made me want to get it i'm a big mike allred fan he's one of my favorite artists for sure and I haven't read as many Mark Russell comics as you have, but everything of his that I have read, I have enjoyed a great deal. So seeing the two of them team up on something, that was pretty much a must-buy for me. Hmm. I have a question about my memory, because in my memory, I recall that the issues were published under DC's Black Label. Was that correct? Because when I looked I, at the hardcover, there was no indication of black label on it. It was on. It was my understanding that that was the case as well, unless they've retconned it or we've we've entered some sort of multiversal vortex and come out on the other end with black label <laughs> not being associated with this book. You know, multiverses are hot right now, right? <laughs> we live in the multiverse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was a black label. That's how I remember it, too. And yeah. I, I feel like frankly, when I saw the issues on the racks, they were black label. But yeah. on the hardcover, on the trade dress, there's no indication that it's a black label book. It just says DC. Yeah. But I was going to say, it feels like the kind of story with the pedigree and the gra gravitas to be a quote-unquote black label book if if the branding of black label is supposed to be you know a more sophisticated mature work of comic you know i guess that's usually what they're aspiring black label to accomplish i don't know if yeah. it's always successful but I feel like yeah. that's the idea, you know, kind of like Johnny Walker Black Label, right? Exactly. That's the high-end stuff. So <laughs> if you were to tell me that Superman Space Age was to be associated with that, with that definition of Black Label, <laughs> sure. But if you're telling me that Superman Space Age is going to be in there with 25 other Harley Quinn books, maybe not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Well said. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a discrepancy between what they're producing and what their aspirations are. <laughs> uh, Tell me, Albert, what are your thoughts on Mark Russell? What are some of the hallmarks of his writing? And maybe you can talk about some of the Mark Russell comics that you've read and would recommend. Right. So I think the first time I'd ever read a Mark Russell book was his Flintstones that was written by him, drawn by Steve Pugh, I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing about that was 
I I think I was initially dismissive of it. I was kind of dismissive of that entire Hanna-Barbera line. It wasn't anything that I was super interested in, but I forget what particular reason I ended up checking it out for whatever reason, maybe just curiosity or whatever. But, you know, I don't have any particular love for the Flintstones. I might have watched some here and there as a kid just because they were cartoons and they were on. But yeah, it's not like they were one of my favorite cartoons or anything. But yeah, when I read that book, it, it blew me away. And it was a book that did get a lot of recognition and accolades from pretty respectable comics people. And after reading it, I could definitely see why. It's, I guess it's something that if, if we were to pick it apart and try to look for elements of it that really highlight a lot of Mark Russell's writing um, ticks and techniques and, and, you know, things that really indicate the kind of storyteller that he is. I would say that there's stories that are pretty contemplative. They often have something to say about society or humanity. They are also pretty witty and pretty funny. He has a good sense of humor and it shows on the page. So I do think that those are those are probably the the words that I would or, or the things, the the elements of his storytelling that jump out at me the most. I'd also say that I wanted to mention that I have read a bunch of his DC stuff and I, I read his Judge Dredd comics. After that Flintstones, anytime I found some of his comics somewhere, uh, anywhere in a quarter bin, I ended up buying them and putting them together. So I did get a bunch of his mainstream stuff, but I feel like you've read more of his indie stuff than I have. Like, uh, not I don't think so. I haven't really read his really early stuff before the Flintstones. Well, I mean, okay, so... You read Not All Robots. I haven't had a chance to check that out. Um, yeah. Did you read Billionaire's Island? No, I haven't read that one. Oh, okay. I, I, the only uh, ones of his I've really read were the Wonder Twins comic. Uh-huh. And Not All Robots and bits of the Flintstones. I have the hardcover of the Flintstones, and so I do want to read it properly, but yeah. I haven't actually read the entire thing yet. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I I didn't realize you hadn't read the whole thing. Um, The thing about it is it is a book where you could actually read each issue out of order. And I think there's definitely something you would gain from each issue, but Mm -hmm. there's a definitely a cohesive, cohesive linear story that happens there too. Um, Yeah. I did read. Oh yeah, the, I, I did also read his Judge Dredd comic. I think I borrowed that from you, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did. So I read his Flintstones. I had read his Judge Dredd. I found a bunch of random one shots he did. So uh, there was this. Uh, 
I forget what the name of the character was. It was another. It was in that era of time where they were doing Hanna Barbera characters teaming up with DC characters. So I I don't remember oh. this. What were we gonna say? He he did a Flintstones crossover, right? I think it was a Booster Gold or something. He might have done Booster Gold, but the one that I was talking about was Green Lantern and what's that blue dog's name? One that sounds kind of like a southern dandy or something oh yeah um huckleberry hound oh yeah yeah yeah. you're right it's i i read the uh green lantern huckleberry hound did you did you pull that like off the top of your head it was on the tip of my mind uh but i ended up i'm on wikipedia right now looking at hannah barbera so okay okay yeah once i I saw his name i knew that was him that's impressive that you knew Huckleberry Hound. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't it thought feels... of Huckleberry Hound in forever. <laughs> it feels like uh, the Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters are kind of a fading memory now. I don't know if kids today know those characters besides maybe Scooby-Doo. I think they kind of know Johnny Quest, maybe, because every once in a while Johnny Quest pops up. Um, I do think that they tried to do a uh, revitalization of Yogi Bear and maybe some of the other properties, but yeah, those kids nowadays, they, they have other things to be more interested in. They, they're watching people unbox stuff or something. I don't know what kids are, into, but, <laughs> you know, the idea of a bear that steals pick a baskets is, is unappealing to them or uninteresting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Those are quaint ideas that we were hooked on when we were little kids. Yeah. He's a bear and he's stealing pickanigga baskets. And the ranger is never able to get him. I'm smarter (laughs) than the average bear. (laughs) I also read his Exit Stage Left, which was another Hanna-Barbera property. It was Snagglepuss, I think. Yeah. yeah, and I heard and then, that one was good. That one won some awards, but I haven't had a chance to read it. That one was good. I have the I have those in issues if you ever want to check that out. But yeah, man, I do think they were. It was as good as Flintstones. They were both solid works. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then after that, whenever I found his name, um, you know, on a comic somewhere, I would try to pull it out and just get it if I could, uh, because He's not a guy that has extensively long runs on things. It feels like, for the most part, the longest thing he's done is like the Flintstones, where you get he gets twelve issues to tell a story, and yeah. most of the times, when I see his name on a big two comic, it's like one issue here, one issue there, kind of a one shot sort of story, or maybe a um, five or six issue miniseries. Yeah, or a five six issue miniseries, exactly. Right. His Wonder Twins but, was also 12 issues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I do think he's a guy that comes up from his indie roots. And if you, you know, if someone told me that he was more interested in doing his own stuff and that's why he doesn't really commit himself to longer runs like a Donny Kate or something like that, then I can see that. I'd believe that. Yeah, that makes sense to me too. Uh-huh. He seems like a guy who's more interested in doing stories where he can 
kind of mess around even when he's playing with uh dc or marvel characters kind of feels like he'd rather do out of continuity stories or do stories featuring characters that aren't quite as popular so he can maybe yeah have the freedom to do more unusual things with them yeah i i agree it just feels like and and it's also i'd also say that i don't think he's necessarily beholden to traditional or conventional versions of the characters because it's more important to him that he communicate whatever he's trying to communicate rather than oh you know batman has to be this way or or whatever right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah we definitely see that in space age yeah for sure for sure you want to tell us a little bit about mark allred and you know your experience with him yeah he's definitely one of my all-time favorite artists personally speaking i've consumed a ton of his work i have most of his madman comics i'm probably missing like a few random issues here and there or maybe like one shot issues that weren't part of the ongoing series that he had at dark horse or image but for the most part i I think i have most of his madman i really like that that's the thing that he's probably best known for it's his own uh creation it's a very interesting book because he looks madman looks like a superhero but it's it's not exactly a traditional superhero book at all it's more of a i guess he's almost like a zany cartoon hero uh who operates in a world populated by mutant beatniks with powers and they just go on these bizarre adventures uh, and just gives Mike Allred a chance to do stories in various genres, explore philosophical ideas, different emotional spaces. So he's, yeah, Mike Allred's not only an artist, but he can definitely write stories as well. How would you describe his art style? I think most people would probably describe his style as retro or pop art influenced. He definitely has a vibe that harkens back to that 50s or 60s era of drawing. Plus, I think the other thing that really gives off that feeling is usually his wife, Laura, colors his work and she tends to choose brighter colors that kind of pop off the page and it really gives his work a cheerful feeling very bright uh powerful like there's not really too many i guess it's not definitely not muted it's just loud i would say like it tends to be something that attracts your attention because it just pops off the page it looks different from a lot of modern looking comics or things that are currently popular it's got yeah it's got its own vibe and flavor and i think it's very distinct because it does take you back to those kind of 60s vibes 
Yeah, yeah. I think you're spot on. Absolutely spot on. His, it's a very cartoony style, but it's just so vibrant and alive. And the coloring from his wife definitely does a, a whole lot to bring that characteristic to the comic. So you you is on the spot there. Yeah, and I was reading a book about him. I have a copy of Modern Masters, Volume 16, which is the series published by Tomorrow's Publishing, where they interview a single artist. And it's kind of like a really long interview, as well as an art portfolio of the featured uh, person's work. And Volume 16 of Modern Masters is devoted to Mike Allred. There's an entire section there during the interview where he talks about the artists who have influenced him the most. And I just thought that was a pretty fun list of influences. So I'll, I'll share that with you and the listeners right now. But the artists who have influenced Mike Allred the most, according to this interview that he gave back around 2008, he first named Jack Kirby, especially uh, pointing out Kirby's energy, passion and power. Not only in his life, but in Kirby's works, just on the in terms of his art, his his art had a lot of energy and, and passion and power in it. Another important artist was Alex Toth, and Allred highlights the economy of style that Toth was known for, where he wouldn't draw unnecessary lines to over-render things, but he would just use exactly what was needed to communicate the idea or the image that he wanted to present to the viewer. Another artist is Bruno Premiani. He did a lot of Doom Patrol comics back in the 60s, I believe. And what Allred likes about his art is his style and energy. Allred actually cites him as probably one of his biggest influences. And when you look at Premiani's work, specifically like his Doom Patrol stuff, I think you can really see the similarities between his art and Mike Allred's art. Like there was even, uh, I remember there was like a, a, an old Teen Titans or Doom, I think it was a Teen Titans Doom Patrol one shot uh, that Allred drew. Uh, so that one's, I remember that story, it, or maybe it was a story in his uh, issue of Solo, but uh, either way, uh, I've definitely seen Allred pay homage to that era uh, or that style of, of art uh, through Premiani's style. Uh, another artist that Allred cites is Frank Frazetta. And this isn't necessarily Frazetta's paintings, but he talked about uh, Frazetta's actual comic book art. And he likes the dynamism within his drawing, the sexiness, how it's just really lush and beautiful to look at. Barry Windsor Smith is another influence. Allred had a lot of love for his Conan comics, and he says that those Conan comics that Barry Windsor Smith drew bridged the gap between the comics of Allred's childhood and his rediscovery of comics as an adult. Another artist that Allred cites as an influence is Steve Ditko, especially for his naturalism and believability. And then the two other big influences are actually, I guess, categories of artists who have influenced Allred. The first one is the indie crowd. 
which includes guys like the Hernandez brothers, Charles Burns, Dan Close, Matt Wagner, and Chester Brown, and also his fellow cohorts at the Dark Horse Legends imprint, like Frank Miller, Mike Mignola, Art Adams, Jeff Darrow, Paul Chadwick, and so on. And then the other group of influences, he calls them the illustrators, specifically highlighting Dave Stevens, Mark Schultz, and Steve Rude. And for Mike Allred, uh, as he says it, they're all comic book artists who are classically trained and have an appreciation for all the basics and older illustrators. So in other words, they're really great craftsmen. And when someone like that applies that level of craftsmanship to sequential storytelling, it's a really uh, impressive thing to see. Mm -hmm. I I do think that looking at Allred's art, you can see a lot of those influences that he cited, like the things that he appreciates about all of those artists. I think you do see that appear in his work. Sorry, what were you about to say? I was going to say, I think the thing that surprises me the most out of that list is Frank Frazetta. I mean, granted, like you said, it's not necessarily a thing where he imitates his style or anything like that. But, you know, it's just interesting to think of how he draws and then to juxtapose that against someone like Frazetta. Yeah. And and to see them being pretty you know, pretty far apart from one another, but it is interesting to think that he still has such an appreciation for Frank Rosetta's style of uh, drawing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I feel like it's easy to associate Mike Allred's art with people who don't draw super detailed art. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And people like Frank Rosetta or Barry Windsor Smith their work has a lot of detail. It's very lush. It's like very heavily detailed um, and textured and everything. Whereas when you look at something like Toth or even Ditko, you'll see a lot more commonalities between their work and Mike Allred's work on the surface. Yeah, yeah. Especially Ditko when when you mentioned it, I was like, oh yeah, he he definitely captures that psychedelic feel that Ditko was just so great at putting on paper. Yeah. Yeah, and the Hernandez brothers, too, because when you look at some of Mike Allred's early Madman comics, like the stuff that was in black and white, that really does look very similar to the art you see in Love and Rockets. I could I could see that. We did that Love and Rockets episode earlier this year, or was it last year? I forget. That was last year. <laughs> That was almost yeah. a year ago. <laughs> yeah, last year. It's all the same. After you get past a certain age, all you know, when you're not in school anymore, it's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, we did that Love and Rockets episode, and I, I definitely see the way in which he draws his form and figures, like the people. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I see that there. And I think of a book like Sloth or something like that, and just some of the more trippy elements that they put on paper and i definitely see comparisons to to all read in that as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. have you read many mike Allred comics i mean i know you read x-force ecstatics because we we talked about that on the podcast before but were there any other mike Allred comics that you've read or have any affection for 
Uh, I haven't read too much. Madman has been around for such a long time. And I, I think that there's enough of it that it feels like it's a little daunting to approach. I, I suppose when my personal you know, reading list lightens up a little, it's definitely on my list of things to eventually read. But it's, yeah, unfortunately, it's just constantly on the back burner. I did mm-hmm. get four issues of this Dick Tracy story he did a couple of years ago. Oh, I didn't it know was... he did it. I didn't realize he drew that. Yeah. Well, I think he drew it. I, I might be wrong. Uh, uh, let me look it up. I'm pretty sure he did it. Dick yeah, Tracy, dead, Tracy or alive, dead or alive. IDW. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he wrote it, but it says the illustrator is Rich Tommaso, so maybe not. I think he did the covers. Oh, okay. Okay. So, but I mean, he's he's the kind of writer who or creator who has such a impression on his work that I'm sure whoever he got to work with him on that was someone more than capable of bringing out what he wants to bringing out a style similar to his own on on the page right and when from what I remember of looking at the interiors of the of the Dick Tracy book, it I, I definitely feel like whoever was drawing it was channeling what Mike Allred wanted. Mm-hmm. Ac- accurately capturing what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, other than that, uh the the main thing that I I'd read of his is his x-force ecstatics that he did with peter milligan i didn't i haven't even read that fantastic four that he did with fraction yeah or or the dan slot silver server i haven't even read those yet but i I will say that whenever i do see his artwork it is some pretty amazing looking art and you can't help but pick it up and flip through it just to enjoy it you know yeah definitely He's a pretty prolific guy, and I've read a bunch of his comics, but I still have pretty massive gaps in terms of the work of his that I haven't read. Like, I haven't read iZombie, and that was a pretty long series for him that was successful enough to get a TV adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I've always wanted to read, just haven't found it for cheap, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is a good sign, though, that even when I was a kid, I remember he was doing he was I remember him working on Madman as a kid and for him to still be around today and to still get as much recognition in his work and work as he does. That's a great thing because so many artists don't end up doing so well and they just kind of fade into the background once they've been used up. So, yeah. you know, I'm glad that Mike Allred still gets a lot of work. Is still this just massively recognizable name. Yeah. So many other artists who started out in the very early 90s, a lot of them 
we don't really know what happened to him today. We don't really see them doing work, but here he is in 2023, still pumping out good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think in terms of the Mike Allred comics, I'd recommend the most. Obviously, Madman and the X-Force Ecstatics with Peter Milligan. He also did an issue of Spider-Man. It was Untold Tales of Spider-Man, 1996, a one-shot written by Kurt Busiek. That was a good one. He had an issue of Solo all to himself, Solo number seven. And then there was the aforementioned FF with Matt Fraction and Silver Surfer with Dan Slott. I usually clown on Dan Slott, but that Silver Surfer run actually is some good comics. Yeah. And Mike Allred is a massive part of that. Hey. In terms of... Huh? I was going to say, hey, if every writer could at least have one thing that they could be proud of, you know, then Dan Slott's still lucky by comparison. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. A lot of yeah. there are there are a few other writers. I can't even say there is one thing of theirs that I really liked. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, at least you can say that about Dan Slott. He at, he at least has Silver Server. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of Mark Russell comics, I'd recommend. I did like that Wonder Twins series he did with Stephen Byrne. I thought that was pretty good, really amusing, and had some funny bits in it. Not All Robots, published by AWA, with art by Mike Diodato Jr. That one was really good. And surprisingly, I'm not usually a fan of Mike Diodato either, but like that one surprised me with how good it was despite the artwork. That one, that comic even won an Eisner Award last year for Best Humor Publication. It's this totally great satirical story uh, that has a lot to say about toxic masculinity and uh, working culture, but it uses the illustration of robots. And I think it's, yeah, just something that everybody should check out and read. It's, it's really funny. Yeah, and that Flintstones, uh, I want to check that out. I was going to say, it's uh, Drew did a posting of it on our Instagram. So if you want to see some pictures and what he had initially had to say, check out our Instagram. Might have to scroll pretty far down the feed. (laughs) I don't remember (laughs) when that was. (laughs) (laughs) Look at all of our posts, okay? Yeah, and I I do need to go back and finish the rest of that Flintstones comic. And I'm also really curious about Mark Russell's Fantastic Four life story. Did you ever check that one out? I got most of the issues. I think I'm missing one issue at this point, maybe two. But okay. Yeah, so I'm I'm working my way towards getting it before I uh, dive into it. Uh, I did buy another book of his earlier this year called One Star Squadron. It's I don't really know much about it, but it is another comic where he takes a bunch of jobber superheroes and does something funny with them. There's there's a chance he might have something to say about capitalism. I think that's one of the major themes of the story because it's the idea of superheroes if they ran a service like Uber. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. a pretty funny idea. 
Yeah, it's called One Star Squadron because, you know, if you call them for help and they fail to live up to your expectations, you give them one star. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering why that was the title of the story, but yeah, now that you've explained it to me, that's intriguing. Yeah, it's it's a funny concept. It's an idea that is relevant to the current time because so much of our economy has become the gig economy where people are moving away from more secure jobs for contract work because you know uh, for big companies it's it's a lot easier for them to hire a contractor that they can not necessarily fire but just stop contracting with if they're displeased with their services right yeah exactly so so uh, yeah i'm curious to see what he has to say about that Shall we talk about Superman Space Age? Let's do it. I will give a brief synopsis and uh, the the synopsis that they give at the end of the book or the back of the book. And then we'll go from there. How's that sound? Let's do it. Okay. It's the end of the world as he knows it. Meet Clark Kent, a young reporter who just learned the world will soon come to an end. And there is nothing he can do to save it. Sounds like a job for his alter ego, Superman. After years of standing idle, the young man from Krypton defies the wishes of his father to come to the world as the first superhero of the space age. As each decade passes and new dangers emerge, he wonders whether this will be the one to kill him and everyone he loves. Superman realizes even good intentions are not without their backlash as the world transforms into a place as determined to destroy itself as he is to save it. So from the back cover blurb, did you think that was a premise to sell you on the book? Did it intrigue you off the bat? I think so. I I think we had also seen... So a couple a few interviews that Mark Russell had done where he talks about it as a story where Superman as this almighty being has to live out the rest of his life all the way to the end of the world and how that experience affects him and and that's essentially at least as far as how I remember it, um, you know, prior to actually reading the book, that was the thing that jumped out at me. This idea that Superman being this nigh invulnerable, all-powerful sort of indestructible being and him building this community with the flesh puppets that are human beings and understanding that he's going to live to the end of the world and watch as everybody around him inevitably dies. And it's the idea of what does he do? How does that infect, not infect, affect him internally, right? How does that affect his outlook on the world? How does that change his behavior that he puts out into the world? That, mm-hmm. that was how I remember it. Yeah. Did you do you remember any of that? Because I, I, I don't remember there being like a whole lot of interviews, but the, the few interviews that I had read, that was the impression that I got. Yeah, that sounds about right, because the first issue came out 
well over a year ago. Uh, I remember reading some of the pre-launch hype interviews, uh, but it, you know it's been long enough where that kind of stuff has sort of faded from my memory. But hmm. what you said does make sense to me. And I think after the series began, like I didn't really, well, I, I didn't read it until I got the hardcover. So I wasn't really paying fully close attention to the series as it was being serialized. I remember seeing some of the issues on the racks when we'd go to stores and, you know, I'd flip through them just to look at the pictures, but I couldn't have told you a single thing about what they were about. Now, having finally read it, it's actually quite a bit different from what I thought it would be, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think I think they purposefully made it a point not to give you too much. I, you know, I I don't know why. Maybe it's just one of those things where it's just better if you just experience it rather than having Mark Russell give you everything. Right. So they kind of give you the, the simplest synopses that they can give you for what actually happens. But I do think it's a story where what happens, like the plot really isn't the the focal point at least for me it wasn't the focal point it was really more about the conversations and the ideas that superman was having and feeling and experiencing those those were sort of the bigger things for me so the way that the book starts out is it starts out in 1985 and you see superman you you hear his thoughts in the form of journal entries and then it goes back to 1963 and you view him as he grows up from a, a, a child to a young man and you know just he he has the same version of the superman origin that we're accustomed to which is uh his ship crash lands in, in kansas and he's raised by ma and pa kent and he lives out in Kansas and eventually decides that he wants to go into the real world. But it is a book that feels like it contemporizes that origin from that, especially from that time period. Because if you look at older Superman stories, especially like the ones from the really early years where he was first coming out, you don't really get too much in terms of details. It's all kind of broad brush brush strokes in terms of what his origin is and what his, you know, home life is. And, uh, you, you know, you get, you get the general idea. His, his parents are good salt of the earth kind of people and they raised him to be a good guy, but it, those older stories tended to ignore a lot of the, societal turmoil of the time right and as time has progressed you might have added you 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 might have had writers that added a little more to that to try to flush those tumultuous uh issues out a little more hold up hold up albert are you telling me that comics from decades ago didn't have any (laughs) politics in them (laughs) (laughs) 
I think that's one way to look at it. I, I think, I suppose they were so stripped down and reductive that you could say that if they if they did have politics, it was a pretty simplified version of whatever politics was at the time, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but I do feel like Mark Russell does. It's interesting that he chooses to tell this story within the period of 1963 to 1985. And those are granted, you know, most periods in history have their own conflicts, but there's something about that period of time in particular and how he chooses to inject the moral dilemma of Superman being Superman with the societal ills that are going on at that time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The other interesting thing about the opening of the first issue, in addition to what you just said, I feel like the way that Mark Russell and Mike Allred take the time to delve a bit into Pa Kent's history or his life story, showing that he's a World War II veteran. I thought that did a lot to humanize and and add character to, you know, Pa Kent's usually just a stereotypical good dad, and we don't really think about who he was as a young man or what were the things that he lived through to make him a good father for Superman. So to me, it's pretty interesting to see that they spend time early on the story to depict Pa Kent's past as a soldier. Yeah. Pa and, Kent's and like really on, interesting here. Oh, sorry. He, yeah, he really is. And like on top of that, the whole uh, passage of time st- stuff that's happening, like you mentioned, the story begins. The story begins at the end of the story, really. It, take, exactly. it starts with the scene in 1985 and then it looks like the implication at the end of that scene is that the world is ending and even Superman is giving up. And then we flash back to 1963 when he's a teenager talking to his dad, helping him haul bales of hay on their farm. So clearly we know that, the story is going to show us the passage of time, uh, at least from 1963 to 1985. So it's interesting to prepare ourselves for a story that spans a couple decades when usually superhero comics featuring Marvel and DC characters like this don't really like to do that. They usually keep dates a little bit nebulous and they don't want to age their characters too much by allowing decades to pass they usually don't even want to imply anything more than like several years they don't want their characters to age because they want them to be timeless they want them to be immortal and they don't want people asking questions of wait a minute if he's this old then how old was sue storm when he met her (laughs) (laughs) actually John Byrne did address that. <laughs> and you know what the answer to that question is? 
You don't. He's want old to enough for it to be a crime. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Reed Richards. He is a dirty man. <laughs> right, right. See, now I really want to read Fantastic Four Life Story to see if Mark Russell did anything with that idea. <laughs> <laughs> Like, hey, and, it'll be okay in the next issue because 10 years will have passed. It'll be another decade. She'll be old enough for Reed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny that you bring up John Byrne. I'll, I want to talk about him a little bit more later. But, oh, well, I guess it, it's a good segue for for some of the things that we can talk about here. Um, we were talking about how Pa Kent is a pretty interesting character in this book. He is, I don't think he's the version of Pa Kent that we're accustomed to which is kind of a inspirational father figure and in the past i'd say that i've had issues with other portrayals of pa kent as the kind of person that they've portrayed him here right uh with with slight differences because the thing is this version of pa kent he is a good guy. He's he's a dude who loves his family. He cares for them. He wants to take care of them. He wants the best for them. But one of the major things that really sticks out is the fact that he tells Clark that he doesn't want him to go out to save the world. He just really wants what he wants is for him to stay on this farm and you know, till the land and enjoy his life that 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 seems to be the thing that jumps out at me if i'm explaining it wrong or inarticulately feel free to say so drew Mm -hmm. um you know but we we saw that version of pop kent in Zack snyder's superman uh when they used kevin costner for that man of steel yeah man of steel yeah and i'd say that that was one of at the times at the time, that was one of the things that I found pretty wrong about that version of Pa Kent. And you would think that because this version of Pa Kent has a fairly similar outlook that I'd feel the same way. But I actually think Mark Russell is trying to do something here to show that I don't want to jump around too much, but uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it a little tight. But it really does feel like this is a story where both of Superman's or or Clark's father figures play pretty integral roles in teaching him how to be the man that we all know him to be, right? So I, I feel like with Pa Kent, it's, it's teaching him about the simplicities of life and about the intimacies of familial relationships you know about those kinds of relationships those kinds of bonds and then we see later when superman's interacting with the jor-el hologram it's interesting that you brought up john byrne because i feel like for years the popular interpretation of jor-el was actually clark you came to this planet from a planet of just heartless emotionless automatons and you coming to earth 
that's what made you different by being raised by these parents. Um, there was nothing that we could offer you except our strength and our intelligence and our advanced technology, but it's Pa and Ma that taught you to be a human being, right? That was mm -hmm. the that was kind of the big takeaway from John Byrne's reinterpretation of Superman's origin. Um, but the thing is, in this version in Superman Space Age, it really does feel like both the parents are equally as responsible for Superman having this ultimately hopeful demeanor. Yeah, exactly. And I yeah. would also want to point out that the version, the despicable version of Pa Kent in Man of Steel, the movie, is very different from this version of Pa Kent. Like the version of Pa Kent in Space Age, in the beginning of the story, yeah, he does tell Clark that he wants Clark to basically uh, spend his time on the farm and, you know, to not really expose himself and his powers too early, but there's there's a little you know crack left open in the door where he says something like, "If the world needs you, it'll let you know." Basically implying that you know now's not your time, but in the future maybe. And then later on, uh, when Clark finally ends up deciding to you know fly off into action like there's a this whole sequence where we go through the passage of time and uh we see the kent family's reaction to the jfk assassination and then uh some time passes and then when lbj is president there's a, a whole situation in the story here where soviet submarines uh are armed with nukes and there's yeah. some you know there's some kind of tension happening in the arctic that could lead to another war so that's when clark decides it's time for him to to do something and he flies out of the door and yeah ma kent is pretty worried pa kent is like what are you gonna do and then you know they can't really stop him he's already flying away but then at the end of it the scene is ma and pa holding each other looking into the sky as their son flies off and pa says he's got to find his own way we can't protect him from the world anymore and we can't protect mm -hmm. the world from him yeah yeah and there's this acceptance of the whole situation you know like an understanding that if this is what clark <clears throat> believes he has to do then that's what he has to do and you've just got to accept it whereas i think the Man of Steel version of Pa Kent pretty much died begging Clark not to use his powers for any circumstance. <laughs> you're right. You're right. He was like, don't do it. And then the tornado swept him up. <laughs> <laughs> that was such oh, a bad man. movie. <laughs> it's a pretty ridiculous way to die. I, I mean, I'm sure that's a thing that happens, but seeing Kevin Costner just get sucked up into a vortex like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's unexpected man <laughs> uh, yeah the thing that the thing about well okay and and 
you know, to go back to Pa Kent and just some of the other differences about him is uh, you, you mentioned that this version of Pa Kent has a past that's flushed out a little more. It talks about his experience and how he goes to fight in World War II and he ends up accidentally killing this small boy. And it's an experience that traumatizes him. But at the same time, it's also a formative experience for him. You know, uh, it's something where he really experiences the cruelty of war and just the tragedy of war because you know ultimately in the end whenever a war or a conflict of that sort happens there there are no real winners and it's only a matter of everyone paying that price and i do think there are i came across a video someone did where they talked about this and their takeaway from it was why can't Pa Kent just be a good guy? Like what sort of, you know, anti-American it all, it almost felt like that's what he was saying was what kind of anti-American um, message or statement is this making that Pa Kent, you know, the, the good and virtuous father of Superman, not only is he someone that doesn't inspire Clark Kent to be a superhero, he also killed a child in a war. <laughs> And this dude took umbrage to that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought that was a really dumb take. It 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 almost ignores the reality of war, you know, because this idea that yeah, I I I believe in this country and I believe that we've done a lot of good. I've also believed that we've done a lot of bad, but it 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 doesn't ignore the fact that when these conflicts happen whether we intend to or not a lot of innocent people die and as a result when you put people into situations where they are actively trying to harm other people that's those are experiences that leave an impact on you you know so mm-hmm. it's something that i believe if if you're building that into pocken's backstory it's a it's something that makes sense for what would shape his outlook the way it does right yeah absolutely so was this video was was this guy in the video was he saying that the fact that pa killed a kid that that he, makes him a bad father or like what was this guy's think the, whole deal with it i think what he was saying was you the problem with Pa here is one, he's he's already someone who isn't he's already someone who isn't a inspirational figure in Clark's life. He's not the person that tells him, "Hey, you need to go out into the world and like you need to use this gift to save everybody or whatever," right? But on top of that, I think he looked at Mark Russell's choice to have Pa Kent tell this story as some sort of anti-war agenda and a way to just diminish or desecrate the idea of what Pa Kent is. And I think in this guy's mind, it was just a matter of why can't Pa Kent just be a good dad and a hero, you know? But I don't think that's really the point of this. 
I feel like that guy missed the point of the whole exactly. sequence in the comic because in the comic, Pa Kent tells Clark this story after he tells him, if the world needs you, it'll let you know. I left home to save the world myself once, you know. It was toward the end of the war. I was sent to help liberate the island of Saipan. And then he you know, goes on and describes the whole situation of trying to root out these Japanese forces who are bunkered down in caves and, and things like that. And then uh, the incident that happens is that there was a, they were facing down a cave and they weren't sure who was inside it. They saw a flicker of light and thought it, you know, they don't know what that is. It could have been someone lighting a bomb or something. So he just fired into the, into the darkness. And then he re- realized that it was a kid, a Japanese kid holding a lighter and he he killed yeah. the kid. Uh, but you know it's it's part of this whole story about Pa's history that he's sharing with Clark for the first time to show him that you know the, there's no it's not always perfection. You know when you go out to save the world, you're not necessarily going to come out on top, come out unscathed keep your hands clean and everything you know there's a lot there's a whole lot of risk involved in doing these kinds of actions so he he wanted his son to be prepared for that and to me that that's just the kind of communication that uh you know an acceptably decent father probably would have with his son it's like yeah yeah that doesn't make him a worse father or anything it's it's like yeah a moment of honesty within the story but i think in this guy's mind it was just i think i could remember almost seeing him roll his eyes or groan at the thought of uh this idea that it's this idea that oh he's gonna have the that pocket is gonna have this tragic backstory where he kills a kid like you know what sort of leftist ideology is this where, you know, wars lead to the death of children and, you know, of <laughs> course, we Americans are to blame for that. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. So I, this guy, the, the, this idiot uh, YouTube channel dude thinks that we've never killed, that he thinks that American soldiers have never killed any kids in any war ever. I think he prefers. Yeah, exactly. I think he would prefer the kind of story where the kind of story from the super uh, the kind of story from those really early days of Superman where, you know, there really isn't that much complexity to it and Superman's just a good guy cuz his parents are good people. Don't don't get me wrong, I do think that's a core concept in Superman's mythology, but I I'm not against having the nuance of complexity involved right mm-hmm. because real people like real people have histories and real people have to live with their mistakes and the thing that makes someone good is their capacity to well the thing that makes someone good is what they do about those mistakes you know i mean mm-hmm. ideally in a perfect world we don't make mistakes but that's not a perfect world we don't live in a perfect world and if anything it's it's what you do when you do mess up. It's what you do when confronted with these things. That's the thing that really determines 
you know, the character of a person. Mm-hmm. 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 But yeah, shortly after that, we talk about how there's the JFK assassination that happens on the news and it's it's a pretty big tentpole moment and another indicator of why he chose the 60s to tell this story um i do think that up until the 60s we see a version of the country that you know we had just come out of world war ii we saw ourselves as the greatest force for good in the world and in the years that followed um people in power and governments did a lot of questionable things and even even if we're not talking about people in power we're we're also talking about the people that make up the fabric of society doing awful things to one another so it often does feel like the 60s was a period of time in which a lot of bad things were just happening that were sort of milestone moments in the zeitgeist of the American population that made it face its own moral ambiguity, you know? Mm -hmm. So like the assassination of JFK in particular was this really big moment and you, they draw it into this scene um, with Clark watching this, the whole world watching this as, um president kennedy is assassinated and just how it impacts all of them and yeah yeah uh, but go oh, go ahead oh, i was just gonna say it, it is fascinating to see how the story integrates the assassination of jfk into kind of spurring uh clark into action i, I mean like, it wasn't the moment that caused him to fly out because that wasn't until after when there was some tension with the Soviet nuclear subs. But just the fact that they ended up, uh, that Russell and Aldred spend an entire page dedicated to the scene of the Kents huddled around the TV watching the news, it does kind of convey something about the time period it makes me kind of think of something like the new frontier dc uh the new frontier by darwin cook because that one takes place slightly before i guess 1963 uh, because new frontier ends with jfk giving his inspirational speech but there's still something about these nearly overlapping time periods that both books have in common and i think how new frontier has these elements that i do see in superman space age it kind of makes me wonder if russell and allred's work is meant to be in conversation with the new frontier because like some of the things i see in the new frontier that i see in space age are things like the entire Justice League coming of age. There's the JFK elements and just the you know the general time period, like this period of of hope and optimism for the future. 
the notion of what that decade's ideal of heroism meant. Yeah, and really just how that era of America shaped our conceptions of of heroism. So to me, that's kind of interesting to see. And we we did talk about New Frontier in another episode last year as well. I don't know. I haven't really fully formed my thoughts on the comparison or contrast of the two books. Mm, but mm. it does feel to me like they are somewhat in conversation and they they have enough similarities that it could be interesting to kind of think about what both books have to say uh, about each other uh, or in comparison to each other. Like if we were doing a comparative lit class or something. Right, right, right. I think that's actually pretty accurate because at this point, New Frontier has been out for what, a couple of decades? Right. Uh, um, I want to say it came out in like yeah around probably around like 2004 or something. Yeah, it so came it's out been around close to 20 years. Yeah, so it came out around 2004, and I think for the time period at the time that it came out, I do think that they're doing similar. Uh, New Frontier and Space Age are doing similar things in that it took the DC characters of a particular time and it brought them to the present, right? Or or not brought them to the present, but it it modernized their view of the world. So when Darwin Cook was telling his version of the DC universe in the New Frontier, it was one that wholly acknowledged the societal ills that were going on at the time and just it didn't whitewash or sanitize what the real world was like. If anything, I, I feel like what Darwin Cook was doing was he tried to make it as real as possible and to acknowledge as much of real history as possible so that his version of 1950s, uh, the 1950s Justice League and the world that they inhabit was as accurate to what real history was like and it's interesting to think of Superman Space Age being written in 2023, 20, you know, 15 or 20 years after uh, New Frontier was written. And if you think about how the world has changed since 2004 and where we are in 2023 and just what we've seen, there's a whole lot more to say there. And I do think that the stuff that's happened in that time gap in our real world is the stuff that Mark Russell is addressing in his version of uh, the DC universe in 1964. Um, yeah. Cause, cause you see a lot of, you see his statement on quite a few things. Um, you see things about corporate power, uh, the running rampant, you see things about crime and, uh, you see things about, you know, nuclear war. You th see things about um, societal unrest. You see things about, uh, um, yeah, uh, corruption in government. And, you know, if you think back to where we were in 2004, I think it kind of makes sense that 
New Frontier ends on this very optimistic note because in 2004, things were, things were, we were coming out of a pretty rough time, but there was maybe still some sense of optimism. And if you just look at how things have been in the past couple of years, it's a little hard pressed to say <laughs> that I got that same feeling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But but at the same time, this isn't a book that really dwells on the negativity, even though there's a lot of doom and gloom in it, because the main conceit of the story is Superman, after after all, you know, leaving uh, Kansas and going to Metropolis, he he picks up, he becomes Clark Kent, he uh, well, I mean, he's always Clark Kent, but he becomes a reporter and he decides to go out into the world and really try to use his journalism to make a difference. And eventually he comes across this being who foresees the death of the world. And initially he's skeptical, but as the world deteriorates, he begins to realize that oh, maybe this guy is right. Maybe this, the world will ultimately come to an end. And it causes him to reassess how he really wants to exist on Earth, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, back to the video that this one YouTuber was railing against this book. And one of the things that he was saying is this version of Superman... This version of Superman doesn't really inspire hope in him because his whole thing is when confronted with the fact that the world is coming to an end, instead of fighting to the very end, tooth and nail, even in the face of uh, utter oblivion, uh, this version of Superman kind of withdraws and reevaluates what he wants to do and how he wants to save the world. And it isn't a thing where Superman goes, I will fight till my very last breath to save this planet. Like Superman legit just kind of goes, I don't think that that's going to be the thing to, to, to help these people. Yeah. And we see that in the opening pages of issue one, which start us off in the eighties at the end of the story. And it's Superman gathering Lois and his son and their son in the fortress of solitude as it crumbles around them. And they basically expect the world to end at that point. So I like here, here's my thing about that whole plot element that the plot thread that kind of frames this book. And I, I think that, Mark Russell and Mike Allred here present a pretty challenging interpretation of Superman, but it's also a valid interpretation. And, and here's what I mean by that, because usually my knee-jerk reaction is that Superman doesn't fail and he can't fail. And you don't want to have a story where Superman screws up, you know, like that's not the nature of his character. Sometimes it feels like people seem to love stories where Superman is put in these impossible situations and he has to 
compromise himself in order to overcome the conflict. And I think a lot of those stories kind of suck because they miss the point of Superman. Because I do agree that he is an inspirational character. He is a character that represents hope. And he's a character that doesn't just throw up his hands and, and give up in the face of of evil. Armageddon. Exactly, yeah. Armageddon. And the prime example of that, the prime example of what I'm talking about here in terms of those stories where Superman has to compromise himself, the prime example of that is Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. Because in that movie, he's faced with the situation where he has to fight Zod or save all these people. And he chooses to fight Zod and let all these people die. And to me, that's not Superman. Not only does he let all these people die during their big fight in Metropolis, but apparently the only way that he can stop Zod is by killing Zod. So he he even breaks the traditional Superman code of not killing his enemies. And people seem to there there is a contingent of people who seem to love that kind of story because to them it's quote unquote realistic or you know modern or something. But dude, Superman was made back in like the late 1930s, man. <laughs> and even yeah. then, like he was a different character than what we popularly recognize him as. He's a character that's evolved over time, but I'd probably say by about like the 50s or 60s, he kind of became who we've recognized him to be all this time. And to turn him into a character that doesn't care about saving lives and to turn him into a character that is willing to kill his enemy because that's apparently the only way he can win the fight and end all the conflict, all the end all the destruction, That that's pretty hard for me to swallow. And I, I don't believe in that i don't accept that i reject it mm. and i think that yeah that's an example of superman failing at being superman basically when he has to kill somebody or when he you know he compromises a part of himself for the sake of the story because that's what has to happen yeah that doesn't work that's a that's a bad use of superman i'm not saying that's a bad story conceptually because you can do that kind of story with all sorts of other characters but if you're doing a superman story you can't have him kill people <laughs> like the same way that yeah. you wouldn't do a superman story where you know he's like committing crimes or or you know sexually harassing people <laughs> or whatever you know unless you're just trying I mean, to here's... unless you're trying to like do a jokey story or or something you know or right, do some right. kind of else worlds or I mean, I guess I think it's something like Injustice, right? Because he, he kills a bunch of people in that story, and that's what kicks off their alternate world. But I would even say that's a pretty stupid story, and I, I don't appreciate that or enjoy it whatsoever. Yeah. So, so he, like, all of that is, is me trying to build up to my point here to Space Age, because in Space Age, Superman seemingly allows the world to end in the face of the anti-monitor's consumption of the multiverse. But I would actually argue that I think Russell and Allred do tell a story that comes as close as possible to that line. They go close to that line of showing that Superman literally fails to save the world, but mm -hmm. they're able to do it in a way where he's still a hero. 
Yeah. They do it in a way yeah. where he doesn't actually literally give up. Maybe he fails in the sense that their universe is consumed in the face of an mm-hmm. inevitable foe. But yeah. what he does in order to try his best to preserve humanity as he knows it, it still makes him a hero at the end of this story. Because yeah. Yeah. essentially it the story ends with him creating a new world. <laughs> That's like well it's it's okay. another crazy idea, but right, right. It, it works for Superman and it, it does show that in this story he isn't just a failure who gives up in the face of Armageddon. Right, right. Like it's it's a weird concept. I, I did have quite a few thoughts on that as well. But okay, I'll I'll, I'll try to articulately phrase what I have to say the best way that I can. But it does feel sometimes like the metric for success for in these stories oftentimes is predicated on the idea of the lives you save and and that's understandable that's a that's a realistic metric to have for you know whether superman does a good job or not right Mm -hmm. but i feel like the thematic through line for superman space age is the idea of hope hope is a very resonant concept that is seen throughout this book right Mm -hmm. and it almost feels like when i was reading this it made me think of the road by cormac mccarthy and Mm -hmm. the thing about the road is it's a story where you have this father and son at the end of the world and the point of the road is that they're living in circumstances where there is no hope the world is dying around them and people have devolved into the worst possible versions of themselves and the point of the story is how the the point of the story is about the well it's about the power of hope and what and how do you show the power of hope more than under circumstances in which they are the most hopeless if that makes any sense right because mm. it's easy to have hope if you think that there's some way out it's easy to have hope if you know there's a magic formula that'll save the planet and someday we're going to return to a civilization that we recognize as a stable sort of situation yeah but the point of the road was well the the point of hope is that it persists even when even when there are situations where we view them to be hopeless that is the point in which hope is the most powerful right that that in in like that kind of hope is the kind that is the most purest form of hope yeah and i i feel like that's what we see here in in superman space age is once he gets to the end of the world and he's incapable of saving him saving 
the actual bodies of the people that die. I mean, because there's there's an interpretation of this where he. So what Superman ultimately ends up doing is once he realizes that he is incapable of fighting the anti-monitor, he turns his attention towards. Okay, first of all, at one point, Pa Kent dies of a heart attack and he realizes that I spent all this time and energy looking at these really macro level threats to the planet that I didn't really focus the time on the humans that inhabit this planet, right? I was so busy thinking about the anti-monitor and Brainiac that all the all the actual lives that inhabit this planet were kind of lost on me. So he decides mm-hmm. to dedicate himself to creating this pill that will cure all illness within humankind, but it has to genetically map everyone's DNA. And what he ends up doing is he, when when the world collapses and begins to die from the anti-monitor taking up all the antimatter, um, he uses that information that he's been collecting and he stores it onto a crystal and he shoots that crystal off into this other pocket dimension, not even a pocket dimension, this other dimension where their earth is devastated and because he shoots that crystal off there he is able to create new life on this new planet uh that is that replicates all of the people that he was able to uh, all of the people whose you know genetic structures he was able to save on this crystal Mm -hmm. so the thing is you can tell yourself that oh yeah well all of them died like literally died on this one planet, but then he was able to restore some version of them on this other planet. So I guess I can see how that's kind of an iffy way to look at it because <laughs> you could still tell yourself he doesn't actually save them, right? But in in other ways, what you're telling yourself is, or how you can read it is, well... You just kind of cloned them. He was, well, he, he cloned them, but also he was able to save the memory of them it, it's yeah. kind of like the way that pa, uh jor-el even though the version of jor-el in the story isn't his flesh and blood father he he's a, a very loving father nonetheless um this this hologram so i do think that there's a parallel that exists there between jor-el and what Clark does at the end, right? It's it's this idea that maybe you know people aren't it's it's back to what I was saying earlier that that metric that the amount of lives that you save um is this measurement for your success for survivability, but what if it's the idea of these people, the idea of this society the idea of um, the world that they're building, what if that's the thing that persists in the end, right? So when Superman builds this new world, he might not have literally saved the people, but he saved their memory. He he was able to save a version of us that will continue to live on. And that's very much like hope, where it's not this 
physical tangible quality but it it exists you know as as a concept i don't know it's yeah it's a book with a lot of ideas and it's something that i definitely have to read several times over uh to really really pin down what mark russell's full thesis is yeah i agree with what you're saying too and that's why i think this is a challenging book for a superman comic because it forces us to consider these ideas that are typically so intrinsic to the character like the idea of superman as a representative of hope is something that i think every iteration of superman kind of beats into the audience time and time again and here the idea of hope is challenged because it's presented as something that isn't the most traditionally optimistic way to look at things but you can't help but notice that the various characters and subplots are constantly dealing with the idea and theme of hope and yeah at the end of it it just kind of makes you as the reader have to think about what is it actually saying and i don't even know if there is like one hard and fast singular answer but it's something that makes you think and that's probably more valuable in the long run when it comes to consuming a work of fiction because it you know it gives you an idea to chew on it leaves you with it makes you ask the question and doesn't necessarily provide a straightforward answer instead as the readers we're the ones who have to do the work to come to terms with what we just read yeah yeah there is one passage uh near the end of the first issue that i thought was pretty fun summation of some of the ideas at play here and it's it comes at at the end of the issue or near the very end of the issue after superman has uh like disarmed a bunch of missiles and threw them on the moon he's thrown them on the moon and stuff and then he goes back home to the farm and he sees uh, his parents and he's talking with well yeah he's talking with pa kent and uh his dad says i'm guessing you had something to do with the fact that we're not all radioactive globules and clark says maybe i need to believe that this meant something that it's not all hopeless but tomorrow it could start all over again or something else will destroy the planet sometimes it feels like we're trying to outrun our own shadow it just feels stupid to imagine that I can strap on a cape, fly around, and keep the shadow at bay. And then Pa says, well, maybe so. But then, maybe hope is just what we need. Or maybe hope is just what we call the stupidity we need. And then Ma comes out, and she sits down with them, and she says, all I know is I'm not worried about anything that brings us all together. And just that scene, you know, like, 
Pa saying, maybe hope is just what we call the stupidity we need. And Ma saying, I'm not worried about anything that brings us together. I don't know. I think that's just a great way to illustrate the the idea, you know. And even Clark's dialogue in that scene where he's talking about how it's hard not to believe that everything's hopeless, that tomorrow things could get worse, something else will destroy the planet, we're just out trying to outrun our shadow. That's the kind of thing that I feel like works as commentary for for our day, you know? Like it really it's timeless because any era of civilization has its own problems and things that work to, you know, threaten it or possibly destroy that culture or civilization. And the people who live in that civilization are constantly trying to fight against that and rage against the dying of the light. But death comes to everybody and yet people are stubborn and and keep on fighting that. So for Pa to have this dialogue with Clark, for Ma to come in there at the end, I feel like that's an acknowledgement of reality, but Hmm. it is good writing because it is something that communicates a hopeful sentiment without falling into schmaltzy sentimentality, you know? It's just a good, honest scene of two parents and their son yeah yeah um what you were saying there did remind me of something and what it was making me think about was there's this scene later on in the book i have to look for it but it's years down the line and it's at a point where clark has married lois and they have a kid and and he's having a conversation with him. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm trying to pull it up, but but basically he's sitting there. Okay, here I'll I'll just read it. He's he's sitting there and he goes, "I miss Grandpa," and Clark says, "I do too." But it's impossible to shut corn without feeling feeling like he's somewhere nearby judging me. And then um, his son, I forget what his son's name is. Uh, is it John? I'm I think it's John. I think but so. John, yeah, but John goes, but you're not going to die, right? I mean, you're immortal. And what Clark says to him is, there's no such thing, son. Everything that had a beginning will, by definition, come to an end. The day comes for us all when you leave behind the things you love, which is both death's tragedy and its promise. And and that's what it, kind of what I was saying earlier, was a lot of the times we focus on the lives that we try to save as if though that is the measure by which success is measured. Right. And I do think one of the through lines, another through line of this book is the idea that everything dies. Essentially that's what he's saying is everything dies and maybe like living or the attempt to maintain some status quo where we're focusing so much on life and who we save sort of misses the point of living. And yeah, it, it, what you were just saying right there earlier just kind of made me think of that where, again, by the time we get to the end of the book, I think that's the, 
epiphany that Superman has, which is I could have spent my whole life, like you said, uh, railing against the light of the sun or something and, and trying my best to save every possible life that I could have when in reality, like there's, there's a bigger idea to us surviving that exists outside of just how many people we save right mm-hmm. yeah and it's a good scene with his son that you just shared because like the previous scene that i was talking about with his parents with pon ma it's good writing you know it's the kind of conversation that i feel like a lot of adults probably would be hesitant to have with their kids or at least I don't know. Maybe I'm just, you know, setting up our straw man to beat him down again as we normally do <laughs> when we talk about stuff like this. But it definitely does feel like the kind of conversation that a confident and competent parent would have with their kid at some point, you know? Like there's an acknowledgement that, yeah. you know, it. every kid wants to believe that their parents will always be there for them and that you know that they won't die like kids don't want to think about stuff like that understandably but that's not a reality so. exactly it's not right? the hard reality. the harder thing to do the harsher thing to say is to tell them the truth which is yeah um i'm not going to be here forever and to some degree like it is my charge to prepare you for that <laughs> and mm-hmm. and that's like you said that's that's i think there are a lot of people who look at that attitude and you know similarly the attitude that superman is unwilling to fight for his last breath for every life that's on this planet right instead of focusing so much on you know each individual life that I save, it's 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 really this idea of preparing for their mortality. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do feel like the premise for this book was an interesting one because, again, we've set it up in our mind that Superman is this immortal super being, but on some level, when a being like that is faced with their own mortality again it's it's this sense that it's the almost the purest essence of that feeling of dread that makes his response more pure than the rest of us right like mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. the the rest of humanity like me you all of us we're all we've all had that moment and we're all very consciously aware of the fact that we're capable of dying at any moment. But imagine that feeling when a being who has been trained from birth to understand their invulnerability, imagine when that dawns upon that being, like just how, 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 how hard and how deep does that feeling hit Superman, right? Yeah. 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 Some 
heady stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's another scene that I think does a really great job of illustrating the concept of hope in this book. And it's a scene where uh, Clark is talking to Lois about a story that Pa Kent had told him from the war. And uh, it's a story about how when, when Pa was a soldier, um, the ship that he was on when they were being transported in the Pacific was hit by a torpedo and then the ship went down and a bunch of people died. But if he and a couple of survivors, you know, tried to get to safety and he and his one friend, Toby, were clinging on to a piece of debris or, as you say, debris, <laughs> trying <laughs> to stay afloat. And his buddy Toby had this his his head's bleeding, but he was OK enough to try and swim to look for help because he saw uh, a, like a lifeboat uh near them so he he swims over there while kent is pretty messed up pa kent's pretty tired and just clinging to uh to the piece of wood for dear life and his buddy toby goes look for help comes back after a bit and he's like well they don't have any room on that boat on that boat but uh don't worry they radio ahead and they're gonna send another boat tomorrow you just gotta hold on a little while longer you know trying to encourage Pa Kent, who's, you know, pretty badly concussed and tired from everything that happened, encouraging him to hold on. So then he holds on and then a day passes, but no rescue boat comes. Uh, So, you know, he just figured, okay, it's just one day. The boat's still on its way. I'll keep on hanging on. And then a, a couple more days pass and then his buddy Toby ends up dying because I guess that head wound was worse than it looked but then on the fourth day a boat came and rescued him and pa kent's like what took you so long you said you were going to arrive three days ago and then the sailor that rescues him re- rescued him says what are you talking about mac nobody radioed us we just happened upon you by luck and then that's when his dad realized that toby had been lying and then superman says to lois but without toby telling him that but without Toby telling him that a boat was on the way, my dad never would have made it. And maybe that's why it's so important to give people hope, even when there's no good reason for it. Because mm-hmm. hope is the lie we make come true. Right, right, right. Like That's a pretty powerful illustration of what hope is in this story. And I'm sure there are, that that's a, the kind of story that easily could have turned out the other way with no boat coming and him just dying. But again, it's like a a simple illustration that just drives home the idea of hope in the face of suffering and why people like it's, it tries to explain why people keep on clinging on to hope when there's no reason to hope. And sometimes Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just need to to lie to yourself in order to have hope. Because I guess the flip side yeah. of the of the situation is like, what if Toby had told Pa Kent the truth that he couldn't reach 
the people on the boat and that there was no way for them to be saved. They would just, you know, floated float at sea until they died. Like if he had told Pa Kent that, would Pa have had the strength to keep on holding on? Yeah. We don't know, right? Mm-hmm. It's you know what it reminds me of that they did that one study and it was kind of a messed up study, but they did that one study where and I, I could be remembering it wrong, so you know if I'm wrong then excuse me, but I think they put like a rat in a tub or something like that, right? And then the first time around they they let the rat swim around and inevitably it would just tire and it would drown, right? Mm-hmm. But then with the second rat, what they did was they put the rat in there in in this tub. And just as it was about to drown, they pull the rat out. And then when they, after they had pulled the rat out, they would put it back in. And, but this time the rat would maintain afloat a lot longer. So the, I guess the hypothesis of the test was that since this rat had experienced a life-saving moment, it was more motivated to keep living because mm. it had had that one experience where some other wor- known otherworldly other known force saved it and it continued to swim exponentially longer than that first rat that had drowned because it believed that if it continued to swim eventually something would save it <laughs> wow it's a it's a pretty messed up test. It's like the it's the kind of test that you can only do like if this was like the fifties where you know people just didn't really care about what you do to animals or people. <laughs> but but it is something that is a testament to again that power of hope or whatever you want to call it. Like I don't know if that rat had a name for it or if it really perceived it the same way that we perceive hope to us. But yeah, it just goes back to to what I was saying about this story. It really does feel like this is a story where it's in any other type of story where there's this all-powerful force that comes to destroy Earth. I think the conventional thing to do is Superman eventually finds a way to beat this thing and saves us all, right? And that's mm-hmm. the thing that gives us hope. And it's interesting that Mark Russell chooses to have Superman be incapable of saving us. But but like you were saying earlier, in spite of the fact that he isn't able to defeat the anti-monitor at the end of the story, his hope still persists. And in in its way, it he's able to defeat it, even though it's not an actual defeat of the anti-monitor, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 in some way, that's the most powerful hope of all. Is you know, it, it's it's in a situation where Superman doesn't save us, but we still believe that we still believe in all of the ideals that keep us going. Yeah, there's something kind of paradoxical about it because, on one hand, the universe is destroyed and he doesn't save everything but 
on the other hand, he kind of did save everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's... In a weird way, it is Mark Russell having his cake and eating it, too. Yeah, and we're the ones who get to digest it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a funny contrast between Superman's story arc and Lex Luthor's. So he, Lex Luthor spends a ton of time in the story. Uh, I guess he had committed pretty heinous crime of detonating a nuke in was it coast city it was an american city and he killed a bunch of people it was coast city he destroyed coast city and ended up going to prison for it but after some time has passed he got a shyster to help him argue that it was not his negligence that caused the bomb to detonate but it was uh the government's government incompetence incompetent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's something like number one, there's something darkly hilarious about how that plays out. That's definitely a commentary on on government. And I, I have a feeling that that's the kind of thing that will age pretty well. Like when we read this 30 years from now, we'll be like, oh, yeah, it was like that back then. It's like that today, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so after he gets out of prison, he basically rebuilt his company. He's finally able to do a hostile takeover of Wayne Enterprises and beat Bruce Wayne. And he thinks he's won. You know, he thinks he's got everything. And near the end of the final book, he goes on this rant in his office. He's just in this super celebratory mood in front of his secretary or assistant. And he's like, thanks to my leadership, the world will soon depend on LexCorp for its very survival. No company will ever again be able to challenge LexCorp. In just three years, I've gone from prison to the top of the Fortune 500. This is the happiest day of my life. And he's like literally crying tears of happiness. And then he raises his (laughs) arms in victory and he's like, by God, I've done it. All my hard work, all my suffering. I've achieved all my dreams. I've won. Don't you understand? I've won. And then he looks behind himself out the window and he sees fire coming from the sky. And he's like, what's wrong with the sky? <laughs> and, <laughs> like, This is when the multiverse is ending and everybody gets destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's just, there's something hilarious about that. I think that's going to be that, that sequence of Luthor in a, you know, celebrating with, I've achieved all my dreams. I've won. And then turning around, looking at the fire, saying, what's wrong with the sky? Like that, that, that feels like Elon Musk in Twitter or something right now. But yeah, there's something <laughs> there's something about that whole sequence where it's like Lex Luthor put his all his hopes in in these monetary things and physical things. So when he's destroyed at the end of the multi at the end of the universe, you know, there's nothing left of him. Because he didn't believe in Superman. He didn't believe in hope. But all those other people who believed in Superman and ended up uh, passing their uh, DNA codes to him, they're going to live forever. Or not live forever, but they're going to live on in the new universe, you know? And Lex Luthor, that's the end of him. Yeah. So it it, it feels like it it does say something (laughs) about, about the value of hope and what you place your hope in. Like there's no point in placing your hope in achievements and 
financial or corporate success. Like that's, there's something empty, hollow and meaningless about it. But the kind of stuff that, that uh, Superman was placing his hopes in was people. And that's something that will live on all the people that he saved. Right. Well put. That was a, that was a really good way to put it. I, I dig that. I dig that. Thanks, man. Hmm. There are some other elements about Space Age that remind me of another famous Superman story, All-Star Superman. We were talking earlier about how there are some elements that are interesting in comparison to New Frontier, but I feel like with All-Star Superman, there are equally as many interesting points of comparison because in All-Star Superman... The sun itself was dying, and in Space Age, we have the Anti-Monitor consuming multiverses. So there's that whole concept of the world coming to an end. And then there are also these similar arcs in both stories with the love between Clark and Lois, Lex Luthor's scheming, Pa Kent dying in both stories. Heck, All-Star and Space Age both have a cover where Superman is literally holding the whole world in his hands. <laughs> and yeah. And the way that they do those images and interpret them is pretty interesting too. Cause I don't know if you remember the Frank quietly cover of Superman holding the earth, but that one is like a very hopeful picture. And the cover that Mike Allred did in this one is, Superman holding an earth that's slowly crumbling away. Wow. That's a pretty interesting juxtaposition. Mhm. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to look for the cover that you're describing. I'm typing it up online. Hopefully I get a hit. Yeah, I don't remember what issue it is, but it oh. is like the if you one just where Frank Quitely All Star Superman, it's one of the first results. It's just Superman holding the Earth in his hands. I guess it's technically it's floating where... in between his hands. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like right on his midsection. Yeah. Yeah. And like Superman looks utterly serene there too. Is the thing. Yep. Completely but serene. I now I'm I'm comparing it to the all red Superman. Yeah, the way that Allred does his covers, Superman looks kind of concerned, and the Earth yeah. is crumbling yeah. away. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm looking at it. So it's, yeah. I, I don't know if that was a conscious choice on their part to do it as an opposite number, but that is an interesting choice nonetheless. Yeah. And. I do think another Superman story that it did make me think of was, and I might be pulling at straws here, uh, but it it did make me think of Superman Red Sun by Mark Miller and was it Dave Johnson? Yeah, Dave Johnson and Killian Plunkett. Yeah, but maybe not quite the same way because I don't think that that was a story that was quite as optimistic as as superman space age because 
well, Superman Space Age is about is about Superman finding hope in the hopeless, whereas and and, and in Superman Space Age, ultimately Superman's actions do matter. But I think in a reverse kind of way, Superman Red Sun is about is almost the inverse of that where Superman learns towards the end to accept a role of non-interference but in a weird almost twilight zone kind of twist his interference was always meant to destroy the planet you know (laughs) 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 or or you might even say the twilight zone twist is uh he he was eventually convinced not to interfere with the progression of the planet, but by not interfering, he led humanity to become the uh, egotistical and prideful species that it would ultimately <laughs> become that would destroy itself. So really, what they needed was his interference. <laughs> Mark Miller, man. Yeah. <laughs> Red Sun uh, is the exception to the idea of Superman stories needing to interpret Superman a specific way because that's a pretty dark version of Superman. But I think by doing that story the way that they did it, by doing this Elseworlds Red Sun story, it kind of highlights what makes the actual, the real conception of Superman special. It highlights it through subtraction, essentially, right? Because yeah. this is the super version of Superman that he's not. And by not being that Superman, we see what Superman actually should be or is. Yeah. Exactly. But speaking of which, if you watch the Superman Red Sun movie that was written by Jam Diem, that's one that's a story that takes it back to its more optimistic roots because the power of hope, that's a concept that is totally in J.M. DeMatteis' wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Did you notice any other themes that you felt were worth mentioning or discussing? Mm, I feel like we kind of tangentially already discussed those these ideas a little bit, but just things like the nature of heroism and good intentions like what makes superman a hero and here i think it's pretty clear that his steadfastness in holding on to hope is what makes him a hero Hmm. and the other thing that i think really stands out um is how the book what the book has to say about wealth power and privilege feel like we talked a little bit a bit about that already when we talked about the incompetent government and Lex Luthor's trial and appeal and his uh <laughs> his his quote unquote victory <laughs> yeah <laughs> like there's definitely a, a lot there that I think the book says about a specific type of 
person and how yeah just how it, it kind of makes a mockery of the wealthy and the powerful and the privileged it does maybe it's it yeah does. maybe it's not like a big theme of the book but it it's something that definitely comes across and i feel like that's something that i see in a lot of other mark russell comics i've read yeah i mean i think for the longest time and and i it wouldn't surprise me if this is something done by design but for the longest time we've convinced ourselves as a society that the rich are naturally just smarter and that's why they're richer. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend like there aren't a lot of self-made, you know, successful people out there. Uh, But we also have to acknowledge that there's a type of person that exists out there who, you know, through manipulation and uh, market or of people and or of regulations or whatever has been able to solidify uh, their own personal wealth. And that's not really a matter of making a better product or being a smarter business person, I guess. Well, I guess you could say, you know, by rigging the system that they're smarter business people, but... Or by taking advantage of a bunch of other people yeah smart business in their eyes yeah but i think the thing is there are also a lot of rich people that are clearly idiots too yeah (laughs) this version of lex is born into a rich family or something yeah but this version of lex is is kind of a good example where maybe maybe you are smart right maybe you're smart in a lot of ways, but maybe you're also nowhere near as smart as you think you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to address this one thing, but, uh, and, and maybe this is me beating a, beating a dead horse at this point, but I do think one of the things that I saw from this dude's video was, this idea he was looking at superman and the video literally states that i forget what what the what the image in his video was but it was something like why is he such a loser or such a passive loser or something like that and <laughs> no yeah I, I think his interpretation of superman was this version of superman is just someone who man this is going to sound awful but this version of superman isn't a chad because he didn't just beat up the anti-monitor or something like that right (laughs) you know why why was he so why was he such a beta why was he so willing to just accept that the planet was going to die but yeah i just feel like that misses the point like i get the idea of escapism but there's also an element of artistry here, right? And mm-hmm. if that's the that's the case, then we have to accept that we can. There's rooms for stories where Superman has to deal with the reality that there are sometimes things that he can't do, and I I think that's just as interesting a story as well. In this case, I think that's more of an interesting story 
of Superman dealing with the fact that there are things that he can't do and how he finds a way to persevere in spite of that. I think that's more interesting than, man, how's he going to beat up the anti-monitor? What's he going to (laughs) do? Is he going to just fly around the anti-monitor so fast that he de-ages the anti-monitor and turns (laughs) him into a baby? Is that what he's going to do? It's a lot easier to beat up a baby than a full-grown anti-monitor. Yeah, baby anti-monitor. I'm pretty sure I could drown that baby in a tub. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, how many stories have we had where Superman just saves the day by punching Darkseid hella hard in the face or kicking the anti-monitor or punching Mongol or, you know, beating up Doomsday? Those things are a dime a dozen, but to have a story that actually does a smart execution of showing us what happens when Superman can't save the world. Like if you would have told me that this story, like, yeah, like if you would have told me that this story was a story about Superman failing to save the world, I would have been pretty skeptical that I could have enjoyed it, you know, because that's not what I want from a Superman story, but actually reading the final product it's quite amazing and i do think this belongs in the pantheon of all-time best superman stories yeah absolutely absolutely i mean it just makes me wonder we've like you said we've seen so many stories where he punches mongol or doomsday or whoever and it just makes me want to ask like even the worst of those stories, are you really telling me that that's satisfying at this point? <laughs> <laughs> like picking the the worst possible, uh, you know, Geoff Johns Superman or J. Michael Straczynski Superman story. Is, is that the thing <laughs> that makes you feel like, oh, yeah, this is how many times can you see that and still get that same high? And I I can honestly say this is as far as I can remember, maybe the first Superman story where we don't see him save the world and really have to deal with the idea. Well, here's how I was thinking about it, but it kind of feels like this is a story that emphasizes the man more than the super, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, And I feel like with Superman, as is often the case, they there's a lot of talk about the idea of yeah he's he's this all-powerful godlike being but at the end of the day he's it's his humanity that makes him uh you know that's the thing that makes him like the real person that's that's the thing that uh that makes him who he is that makes him who he is right the the fact that he came to this planet and he was taught by uh, humans to be the very best possible version of a human being but i don't i feel like it's a lot of the times it's just kind of lip service we don't really see that as the crux of the story play out um and you know not to keep bashing on it but it it takes me back to man of steel again where they tell this story where Superman has just fought Zod. He, he he kills him. He breaks the dude's neck. And uh, by the end of the movie, 
he is introduced to the world. Like the world knows who Superman is. And there are a lot of people who like him, but there are also a lot of people who are skeptical and afraid of him. And there's this if one there's even a one percent chance that he's our enemy, <laughs> we have to take it as an absolute certainty. We gotta kill him. <laughs> <laughs> but it reminds me of this one scene at the end where uh, Superman's talking to. I, I I think I just know his last name is Jones. Um, I I guess since the Snyder cut, we can say that he's John Jones now, but. Superman's talking to this military guy, uh, this general, and uh, the guy says something to the effect of, you know, you're not from here. How do I know I can trust you? And Superman just looks at him and he goes, I'm from Kansas, you know, and it's just kind of this really casual way of saying it. And people look at that as if that's the thing, right? That's the moment where you see that he's just, he's as human as apple pie. He's as human as you and me. But we rarely see an entire story dedicated to, you know, him being human. And what's more human of him than to have him face his own mortality under circumstances that he can't win? Yeah, that's true. It feels like if we usually if we do get a Superman story or an analog Superman story where the character faces his own mortality, it's usually one of those things where like everybody around him has died and because he's superman he's the last one alive because you know he's long lived and has yeah, those powers yeah. and everything and you know he's he deals with mortality by watching everybody else waste away but yeah. in this story he doesn't need to do that because he is as powerless as a regular person in the face of the anti monitor yeah there's a scene in the book where they describe it, and I think I forget if they were describing the anti-monitor attack or if they were describing Brainiac. But um, when they come to the planet, he the way they describe it is it's not some sort of an attack. We don't establish some sort of one-on-one -on -one fight. They just come and they're just going to do what they're going to do, you know. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of describes it as just this force of nature. And it's not something you can negotiate with. It's not something that you can punch. And it's that sort of inev inevitability that we all live with every day when, when you realize that, you know, death comes for us all and there is nothing that any of us can really do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were there any other elements in the story that you wanted to highlight? No, I think we did good. I, I'm pretty satisfied. Uh, I guess there are a couple of funny things to, to mention because, well, I, I do want to talk about the art a little bit. Uh, I I think initially when I was first reading this, I did mention that Allred was an interesting choice for such a serious story. I, I didn't necessarily think that this was a story that played to his strengths, although I think he's still a very good artist. I'm not saying that I don't want him on this book or that I think he's wasn't suited for it, but because of the fact that it was such a serious story, it was interesting not seeing Allred do these really goofy sort of pictures, right? Or even 
even on a fantastical sci-fi level, it's not like we saw a lot of scenes where there was a lot of zany science fiction that he could apply to the page. Because a lot of this story is really conversations that people are having and, you know, contemplative moments. So yeah. I did want to say that about the art. Uh, but I, I still think Mike Allred's fantastic and I, I I wouldn't want anybody else on this book, but it was just something that I couldn't help but observe as I was looking at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you want to talk about the flash in the book? <laughs> <laughs> I especially liked how they made Barry Allen an insufferable, self-absorbed ass. Just kind of yeah. confirms in my mind that Wally West is the best Flash. Yeah. <laughs> when uh, the aliens come to Earth, the the whole time they're sitting around the at the Justice League and kind of discussing the severity and how dire this situation is. And the Flash is just so disinterested because he's like, you guys talk way too slow. You're kind of boring. Uh, at one point, when they go up to fight in space, he's like, well, I don't really fly. Do you really need me to be here? Is there anything <laughs> that I'd really be able to do for you? <laughs> he's he's uh he really seemed inconvenienced by the fact by being a superhero. Like being yeah. a superhero really seemed like an inconvenience to him. <laughs> he spent all his time at the Hall of Justice building those those uh ships in a bottle or model yeah. kits of the Eiffel Tower or something like he's always got to do something because everybody else is just boring him and there's just something funny yeah. about the way that he's portrayed in this comic yeah yeah I agree I got I ain't got no love for Barry Allen so yeah I'm glad that Wally West is the true flash Amen. Amen. <laughs> I also thought it was pretty funny that they killed off Hal Jordan pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take that, Jeff Johns. Suck an egg. <laughs> I wonder if Mark Russell if I'm I wonder if he has what his genuine thoughts or emotional attachment are or what what's his emotional attachment to Barry Allen and Hal Jordan? It, just from this book, it kind of seems like he doesn't really like them too much. It kind of reminds me of when um, was it Alex Ross or Mark Wade when they were doing yeah, like when they were doing Kingdom Come, just at the time, Kyle Reiner, Kyle Rayner was the Green Lantern at the time, and they didn't even want to use him. <laughs> yeah. I remember Alex yeah. Ross used to have this policy where he would only draw the versions of the characters that he liked, but I feel well, like he softened least, on that in recent years. Yeah. I was also going to say, at least he was using Alan Scott and not Hal Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. Was it? That was Alan Scott, right? Yeah, I think it was. I got to double check, but I'm pretty sure okay. it was Alan Scott. Yeah. Yeah. So I can, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, the other thing I was going to say about Space Age it's kind of the inverse to what you were just talking about about Mike Allred's art on this book but Space Age is actually not really what I expected from Mark Russell 
because what I did expect was something that was more satirical, something perhaps with a scathing sense of humor and chock full of social commentary. And there's certainly some humor and social commentary in this book, but I feel like on the whole, it's more of a somber, reflective, and serious story. Any comic or any comedy in this book is secondary to the drama and its contemplative exploration of hope and heroism. So I feel like Mark Russell, he really did surprise me with his scripting in this book because it's not what I expected from him based on the previous stuff of his I've read. You know, he's not just like this one trick guy who can't do serious stories, but he he can kind of, I guess in a way, you could kind of say this book out Tom King's Tom King, you know? Yeah. The, like, Tom King's characters are contemplative, but Superman's, like, the amount of dialogue that he puts into here, by comparison, it, it's really more introspective just by the virtue of the amount of dialogue that is in there. Yeah. And I I definitely do like the Tom King sad superhero stories that he's known for. So I think that anybody who likes stuff like Mr. Miracle or Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, things like that, or The Vision, I think people who enjoy those books would probably enjoy Space Age as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's something fascinating, isn't there, about how the writer and the artist kind of subverted our expectations with this book? Yeah. I, I think that's the other thing, too, is... I mean, I'm not going to say that his other books are insincere, but there is something about this that feels especially earnest by comparison to to those yeah, because I think well, some of Mark Russell's humor, it usually tends to be more irreverent, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, he's not afraid of offending people. And I think that, that leads to maybe you'd call it edgy humor at times, or at the very yeah. least, it's just very satirical. But this book, like you said, it is earnest, and I do think that it has these sincere ideals that are being presented in a way that are meant to be reflected upon instead of mocked or treated in a way where we're looking down at yeah. them, you know? Yeah. It's definitely not a Garth Ennis comic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a Garth Ennis story. <laughs> Because, like, even when you All think right. about one of Garth Ennis's most famous issues, the issue where Hitman meets Superman, like, that's a story that does treat Superman with a lot of reverence and a lot of sincerity. And it's, it is a very hopeful, idealistic take on Superman. But I feel like when people talk about that book, the thing that they forget is it does kind of have a cynical ending because... After Superman flies away from the rooftop, after he's done talking to Hitman, Hitman goes on and like does his assassin thing. And it's like <laughs> kind of a joke, you know? Why didn't Superman stop him? Yeah. <laughs> they just had this like this terrific heart-to-heart moment. 
It's so human. And then he's just going to go end a life. And Superman did nothing. <laughs> uh, oh, it's man. like Superman's mind at that point is like, wow, this guy just gave me the words I needed to hear in my darkest, lowest moment. He must be a good guy. <laughs> Thanks, man. And, you know, fly <laughs> off. And then as soon as he's as soon as he's on the other side of the world, Hitman's like, OK, time to kill this guy again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. You got anything else? Nope. You want to finish off with our recommendations? Sure thing. Sure thing. Um, yeah, we mentioned them a little bit, but I do think after reading this book, the first thing that did pop into my mind was Tom King and some of his sad superhero stories. I haven't read too many of them at this point, but the one that I did read was his Mr. Miracle by him and Mitch Gerards. Gerards. And the thing about that that I find similar is, yeah, again, it's a story where the stakes are kind of high, but it's really about the superhero going through their own emotional turmoil and how they process it. So I think in that way, it's very similar to what Mark Russell did here. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend that. Um, yeah, I, you know, in addition to that, a bunch of the other Mark Russell comics that we mentioned earlier today, we talked about his Flintstones. I, I, I do think that that's pretty high up there uh, with him and Steve Pugh. Uh, I, I would rec definitely recommend that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, definitely would. Go ahead point to all the Mark Russell and Mike Allred comics that we highlighted earlier in the episode. Um, I guess the only other things that came to mind, to my mind, were All-Star Superman by Morrison, Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely, as well as DC, The New Frontier by Darwin Cook. Uh, we mentioned them throughout the course of this episode, but I definitely think that they're worth checking out or revisiting or visiting for the first time if you enjoyed Space Age. And we did talk about the new frontier back in episode 142. If any listeners out there want to go back and check it out. Anything else for you, Albert? Yeah, I, I wanted to go over this one scene at the end of. Um, towards the end of the, the book where the world is falling apart and you're reading the final bits of Superman's journal. And he, he has this section where he reads, time is mere, merely a useful illusion, a byproduct of our minds. Time exists to simplify the universe to the point that we can't experience it. But time along with the dimensions of space is simply the limitation of existence, not an end to it. Just because there are miles of empty space above your head, that doesn't mean you cease to exist. When I look at the stars above you, when I look at the horizon beyond you, it doesn't mean that you cease to exist because I don't see you there. You, me, and everyone we know, we are all permanent residents of the four-dimensional objects we call the universe, eternal and indispensable. So it is with time, just because you're only here for a short time, that doesn't mean you're gone. It, it, it just means that I am experiencing the parts of time where you aren't. And that I thought that was a really beautiful page. And 
a really poetic way to describe time and it's it reminded me of the last four episodes actually of the series adventure time and the thing that it reminds me most about adventure time is that when the show finally comes to an end uh there's there's this huge battle that takes place and I think on a meta level, they understand that this is the last time that you as the viewers are going to be with these characters, right? And this was a show that has been around for like time, like 10 years at this point. And one of the songs that they sing in, in that very last episode is a song called Time Adventure. And it covers... Uh, it covers a very similar theme because even though uh, the characters in the story are, are going on their final adventure, um, this song talks about how, uh, you know, even though this in this, we as corporeal beings have no understanding of time, but at the same time, there's some form of us existing at some point that will always exist right mm -hmm. so by the time you get to the song uh end of the song the 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 last beat is is one of the things that i love and it's the chorus goes it would look like will happening happening happened and there we are again and again because you and i will always be back then right so it's this idea that even if in the now we're not experiencing that moment somewhere along the time stream we are reliving those experiences over and over again so i just thought that was um yeah i, I think it's a beautiful song and i i think it's like a great way to end the show if if you were as moved by this final scene in space age i would recommend that the the very last four episodes of adventure time entitled come away with come along with me hmm. I gotta check that out. You think you think it's uh, worth checking out just those four episodes, even if I haven't seen the rest of the series? Truth be told, I would recommend watching the whole series because it just makes that last the last four episodes hit that much harder. Uh -huh. I I think if someone watched that last four episodes, there's just there are just connections that don't necessarily, you know, they just haven't been formed you know, in, in your mind uh, and not having gone on this journey with these characters. Cause again, this was a show that was on for like 10 years and I'm pretty sure that the writers having done the show understood that the kids who watched it kind of aged along with the show. Mm -hmm. So, and when you watch it, there's definitely this sense that the earlier years of the show are more irreverent and they're more silly so that's why the earlier years of the show are a little harder to get through because as an, you know, especially as an adult watching it, you're just like, oh, this is just kind of ridiculous. Why? Ooh, I don't get it. But as you watch the show, you watch the characters mature over time. And by the time you get to the end of it, there's there's definitely an earned progression that that happens. Hmm. Yeah. Nice, man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
Hey, I got a question well, for you. Oh, sorry. Were you sure, still going to talk about? You no, have no, more no, no, no. To say about it. No. On the I have said everything that I can say. Okay. On the second to last page of Space Age, on on in the panel where everybody in the new universe is looking up at the statue of the Superman from the other universe. Uh, are you looking at that page? I am. Do you think that little dog in the bottom left corner kind of looks like Pepper? Wait, second to last? Yeah, the second to last page of the story. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't that dog kind of look like Pepper? <laughs> it does. Uh, now I... Man. The dog doesn't have the white scuff, but... The white yeah. scuff, but... Other than that, she kind of looks like Pepper. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Uh, it looks a little more Chihuahua-ish. Like, its eyes are a little more buggy. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Man, I'm looking at this ending, too. And there is something about this that's that's interesting. The fact that this, ver at the very end, that version of Superman died. And, and you know, we've been talking about that this whole episode about how he has to die in order to face his morality, mortality. And then by the time we get to this new universe, this entirely different Superman is the one who restores humanity. Yeah, so it, it really doesn't feel like... Um, it doesn't feel like, oh, yeah, he's purely indestructible. Uh, never mind. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> well, did the whole idea of the multiverse in this story bug you at all? Because I know when we were talking a couple of weeks ago about Across the Spider-Verse, we did talk about how we were getting sick of multiversal stories. And here we are reading a yeah. story that has another multiverse <laughs> in it. Uh, No, I like I that doesn't necessarily mean that I still want to read more multiverse stuff, but. Uh, I think the content of this, the emotional content of this, and the thematic content of this is stimulating enough where I can overlook, you know, another multiverse story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no more after this. <laughs> Next week when we read Deadly Class Volume 7, they're going to enter the multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> the multiverses of cl of classes that they're gonna <laughs> attend <laughs> well anyways if uh yeah if you happen to be listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on if you could give us a high rating that would do a lot to boost us in the algorithm you can follow us at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com you can follow us on instagram at between the gutters by the way, we are on threads now because we are abandoning Twitter like a sinking ship. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you can, if you want to check, follow us on uh, Between the Gutters uh, on thread. We're there. Um, well, we're still technically on Twitter, so you can follow us there too uh, at Between the Gutters. So We'll, we'll you know, be there until, until Twitter ends up dying. Exactly. Until they are unable to pay any more bills and have to close up shop, we'll be there. <laughs> yeah. At, at some yeah. point, Elon Musk is going to look behind himself, look out the window and see the fire coming down from the sky. 
all right next week we are going to continue our read through of deadly class with volume seven so we hope that you continue to stick with us as we go through that series I'll end this episode reading one more passage that I think is a pretty beautiful closing scene. It's the third to the last page of the book, and it's our final scene with the Superman that we've followed throughout the story, the Superman who ends up dying to save the people in the new universe. But as everything is ending, the multiverse is collapsing, Superman is accepting his fate after he's passed the crystal into the other universe. His narration says, Lois once asked me what it means to be a hero, and I'm not sure I ever really came up with a good answer for that. But the, worst, but the best one I could come up with is that a hero is someone who never thinks about how much they mean to the world, but realizes just how much the world means to them. And then there's this one panel of Superman looking up into the void as everything collapses around him. And he says, goodbye. I did the best I could do. Yeah. It's a moving page. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>